0: And if you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be looking at the end of chapter 4. So my grandfather, uh, my grandfather, I just, just lost my last grandparent um, Thanksgiving Day 2018. So my grandfather used to always say, he lived till he's was 96. Um, his mom lived just shy of 101. But he used to always say that the hardest thing about a long life for him, anyhow, was that all his old friends, what, died before him, right? So that was just a, he, that was a really, really difficult thing for him as he got older. Uh, he had a lot of, lot of great buddies that, that he just watched pass away. And I, I'm still in my 40s, uh, so, but I, it's interesting. I was looking at my wedding album the other day, and I realized we had a pretty small wedding, and I think we had around 70 guests. And I counted at least 15 that have died. At least 15. I'm like, I did the math, that's like, that's like over 20% of our guests. I mean, there were grandparents, um, uncles, some, a couple of cousins of mine died of drug overdoses, uh, some friends, at least 15 out of 70 uh, have died. Now, a few of you are like, I'm glad I wasn't invited to Randy and Cheryl's wedding. (coughs) Percentage is a little uncomfortably high. But but physical death is one of the certainties of our our human existence. Um, So as a Christian, how should we view it? it? Paul's letter to the Thessalonian church is full of references to the return of Jesus, that one day he will come back. He's come for the first time. We celebrate the season of Advent over Christmas. That word Advent just means coming. And he said that he will come back as a triumphant king and judge over all the earth. And that, that, that teaching tells us throughout Scripture that it could happen at any time moment. Um, I've mentioned that in the letter to the Thessalonian church, every chapter ends with a reference to the second coming of Christ. I actually read one biblical scholar uh, commented that the return of Christ is in one fashion or another mentioned over 300 times in the New Testament. Over 300 times. This church that Paul is writing to was convinced of Paul's teaching that the Lord would come back, but they were confused about some of the implications of it. Um, we, we've talked about the fact that Paul was with them for a short time. He, there was persecution. He had to hurry up out of the city. So they had some questions and some problems. Last week, we saw that that Paul addressed an issue in the church that some people apparently, um, with the the implications of the, the return of the Lord being at any time, they they made an excuse to be idle. And Paul enters into that, telling them that it should be quite the opposite. We should be diligent. We went through that last week. And, but this week, Paul addresses a concern that they seem to have about those who die before the Lord returns. Now, we know now here that all of them have died before the Lord has returned. But they had this question What about those who die before the Lord's return? If it's imminent, uh, will they be at a disadvantage? Will they be missing out on something uh, beautiful, on the experience, if they're not on earth when he comes? And again, 2,000 years later, some of those questions might strike us a bit strange, but for them, they were very real concerns. And the instruction that Paul gives to these young believers here at the end of this chapter has been an encouragement that has echoed down through the ages. So I'm going to read, we're just going to look at chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that those who are still alive, or that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another or each other with these words." Now, before I move on, I I, I, I need to note that in the, around the year 1830, uh, there was a Plymouth Brethren man named John Darby um, who made popular the idea that what is written in this text is a is a separate event from the second coming of the Lord, a rapture, which is the Latin phrase that we find uh, in that phrase. Caught up, um, and that this rapture is kind of a precursor to the Lord's return, in which Jesus takes the church from the earth into heaven. For all are part of the earth's last days, known as the period of tribulation. And, and there's a there's a spattering of thoughts, uh, point uh, concerning that in the century before Darby, um, but. As far as I understand, there's no solid evidence that, there was ev- that it was ever understood or received this way prior to that. Um, that's re- so that idea of a separate rapture is really less than 200 years old. Um, now, I, I don't, I don't uh, by any means consider myself an expert in... Ex- uh, ex- um, eschatology, which is which is the study of end times. Um, but I would suggest that the idea that this is a separate event from the Lord's second coming is actually out of step with the rest of Paul's teaching. Um, and now, I, I know when I say that, some people have grown up with that idea and with that teaching, and some people still really hold firmly to that teaching, and I respect that. So I just want to say, I respect that, um, but I will not... I will not teach it that way. Um, I, I'm going to take the more historical approach that Paul here is just consistently pointing to one event, which is the return of Jesus Christ. And I, if there's any, any, if I wasn't clear there, you can come to me later. We can talk over some coffee. Um, I, I'd also suggest that Paul isn't attempting here to give what we might call an exacting schedule of everything that will happen as a result of the second coming. What he's doing is he's giving a very succinct answer to a pro- apparent concern or a question of the Thessalonian church over those who would die before this event because apparently that was the case, that he had preached to them about the second coming and then some had died. And they said, well, what, what happens to these folks? And maybe even more pointed, what happens if I die before the second coming? And in answering these questions, he's trying to shape the way they view and understand death itself. And he's trying to shape the way, in turn, they live in a world in which death still seems to dominate. Now in these verses, we see that physical death, physical death, is transformed for those who are in Christ. Now that expression is pivotal those who are in Christ. It means that you have come to Jesus in repentance and faith and received him as your only savior, your only way to connect and be reconciled back to God. Amen? That's what it is to be... Amen? That is what it means to be in Christ. That once I have taken that step of faith, I find myself encapsulated in all that Christ is and all the blessings of heaven. So... Death is transformed for those who are in Christ, and our first clue to that is that Paul refers to the Christian dead simply as having what? Fallen asleep. Fallen asleep. So it's interesting. We can ask why? Do, why is death called sleep? And and Jesus. Jesus actually did this a couple of times. There's a couple of instances in the gospel. One time, a man named Jairus comes, and his daughter, his young daughter, is dying. I mean, she is like on death's bed. And he comes to Jesus in a panic. Lord, Lord, my my daughter is dying. Come, you know, come. You lay your hand on her. You can heal her. Jesus goes on his way. If you know the story, he's actually interrupted on the way. He heals another woman. And then after he heals that other woman, uh, someone comes to them and says, hey, listen, don't bother Jesus anymore because your daughter is what? Dead. And Jesus says, when he, co- he, he keeps moving to the scene, and he says, she is not dead. She is asleep. And what they do? They laughed at him. They laughed at him. The next verse, I think it's in the Gospel of Mark, says, they laughed at him because they knew that she was dead. But Jesus knew what he was about to do. Jesus knew that he would raise her from the dead. Now, anytime Jesus rose people from the dead in the Gospels, it was from mortal to mortal because it's a picture of what's to come, mortal to immortality. Okay? So, but he says, she's not dead, she's asleep. ...happens again, right? In the Gospel of John, Jesus' friend Lazarus is very, very sick. Aren't we going to go see him? They wait. They they seem to almost hesitate. And then finally Jesus says, our friend Lazarus has what? Fallen asleep, and I'm going to wake him up. I'm going to wake him up. And one of the disciples actually says, well, if he's sleeping... We should just let him sleep. You know, he's not feeling well. And that's where Jesus is like, listen, dude, he's dead, right? He's dead. But what he says is, Lazarus, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I'm going to go wake him up. Why? Because he knew he was about to raise him. So so the picture here is that is that where we think of death as this permanent condition, those who are in Christ find it as a, temporary condition, that they truly are sleeping, if you will, and only awaiting the voice of their master to wake them up. They're waiting the voice of their master to wake them up. He doesn't use this phrase just to be comforting. He uses it because death has been transformed in Christ. We can notice in verse 14 that that Paul says, and this is is purposeful, Paul says, Jesus died. He says, Jesus died, but that those who are in him only sleep. Uh, Leon Morris writes, Christ endured the full horror of that death that is the wages of sin and thus transformed death for his followers into sleep. For the natural man, death is the antagonist that no one can defeat, but for the Christian, it is completely without terrors. It is no more than sleep, and the transformation is brought about with Jesus. Now, again, I'm going I'm to give you a side note. I'm going to get a little technical here. When the when, an important side note here is that when this this biblical concept death as sleep, applies to the body only. Applies to the body only. Um, we do not get the idea in Scripture of the human spirit sleeping. Paul, Paul is very clear that to be, he says, to be away from the body is to be what? Right, at home with the Lord. Yep, Second Corinthians 5, eight. To be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Um, a condition that he calls in, in, in Philippians 1 as gain. He almost gets this sense that he was struggling with this, should I, should I stay with you or should I go home to be with the Lord? And he says when he's at home with Christ, that condition is better by far. Um, you, you get other examples. You get the transfiguration where Jesus is transfigured before Peter, James, and John. And who who all of a sudden appears with Jesus in spirit? Who? Moses and Elijah. Right? And it says that they're speaking to him and encouraging him and they're, they have, they're, they're engaging with him and serving him. Though their bodies had died centuries before, we see them engaging the living. The, man, the thief on the other cross that, that asked Jesus that he only would remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth. In other words, listen up. You can stand on this, right? This is a solemn truth. He said, today, today, the day of your physical death, today you will be with me in paradise. Right, so this idea for the Christian is that the body sleeps and it's to be awoken at the resurrection upon the Lord's return. Now notice, and this is really kind of cool, in verse 14, it tells us that Jesus brings with him those who have fallen asleep in him. So you get this picture that he's bringing with him those who have fallen asleep in him. But verse 16 says what? That the dead in Christ will rise first. So you're kind of like, how can he be bringing them with him and at the same time them rising? And I would contend what he's saying is that the spirit comes with the Lord and that the resurrected imperishable body comes and is met with that spirit. Man, thank you thank you <laughs> not for me for my sake, but for god's word's sake amen it's a beautiful picture. Jesus has thus so transformed death that for the believer uh, Paul says our response to death should be transformed it, it should be it stand in stark contrast to those who do not yet know the Lord um, He says that we're not to grieve like the rest of men who have no what? Hope. And and the hope that is talked about here, we can say, is a condition of absolute assurance in what the future holds, not kind of wishing upon a star, right? That's kind of a different hope, wishing upon a star. It's an absolute assurance in what the future holds. I've I've been to funerals in which hope, is a nebulous wish. And that's a sad, sad place to be. Right? We've all been to funerals like that. That hope is kind of wishing upon a star, some nebulous wish, some kind of abstract, I hope they're in a better place. But I've been to Christian funerals where hope is blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Right? And there is a striking difference in that kind of hope. A staggering difference. It's a guarantee that as Jesus said about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who, again, they had died centuries before. He's in a conversation with a group of people that do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And and he says, you know, hey, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he says, he is not the God of what? The dead, but the God of the living. In other words, when we say he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we're talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob alive with the Lord in spirit. He's also, Jesus is the one that at Lazarus' tomb, he says to Martha, listen, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Uh, Martin Luther King spoke at uh, Martin Luther King Jr. spoke at a funeral of a very tragic event where uh, a racist set off a bomb um, in Birmingham, Alabama, in 1963, and four young girls um, were murdered that day, and four young African American girls. And Martin Luther King Jr. at the funeral said. I hope you can find some consolation from Christianity's affirmation that death is not the end. Death is not a period that ends the great sentence of life, but a comma that punctuates it to more lofty significance. Death is not a blind alley that leads the human race into a state of nothingness, but an open door which leads man into eternal life. Let this daring faith, this great invincible surmise, be your sustaining power during these trying days. Now again, Paul says that we are not to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Now that doesn't mean that we are not to grieve. Um, It is natural to grieve the death of a friend, of a parent, of of a loved one. That is natural. That is, in a sense, right. But what we grieve as Christians is we grieve a temporary loss of fellowship. That's what we grieve. A temporary loss of fellowship. It's really interesting in Philippians two twenty seven, I believe it is, um, apparently Paul's friend Epaphroditus had been very, very sick, but God had mercy on him, he got better. And, and and Paul says that God having mercy on him spared him sorrow upon sorrow. So even Paul was saying he would have he would have greatly grieved his friend Epaphroditus had he been taken. It's not that we don't grieve, but it's that we do not hopelessly despair. John Stott says, what Paul prohibits is not grief, but hopeless grief. Why? He gives us the reason. Because we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with him, with Jesus, all those who have fallen asleep in him. It's because of our grounding, this hope that rests squarely on the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus. And that historical fact that Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection with much more fruit to come. I read a story of a pastor um, that was scoffed in in Nazi Germany. There was a a Nazi supporter who was speaking at a rally in which he was railing against the Jews. And he spotted this pastor in the crowd, and he called him out, and he said, You are a fool! He shouted, Imagine anyone believing in a crucified dead Jew. The pastor apparently stood to his feet to answer him and said, I should indeed be a fool if I believed in a crucified dead Jew. But he retorted, but I believe in the risen living son of God. It's in Jesus that the believer has perfect union. And what Paul is saying is if you have perfect union with Jesus, as he has risen, so you will rise. The truth of our future state rests in what God has already done with Jesus. So then Paul gives us next this vivid glimpse of the parousia which is the Greek word that parallels this Latin word of advent, meaning coming or presence or kind of the official coming of a king. The angel said at at Jesus' ascension, he said as they're staring up in the sky, right, and they're they're just looking and Jesus all of a sudden, he goes up into the clouds and he disappears and, and the angel's like, what are you doing? You know, I was thinking like Bugs Bunny looking down the hole, you know, with Elmer Fudd. Yeah, what you looking at? What are, what are you doing? What, what are we looking at? He said. He says. He says. This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way of you have seen him go into heaven. So as you have seen him go, he will return. The Phillips translation reads that. Um, this section of verse 16, it says, one word of command, one shout from the archangel, one blast from the trumpet of God, and the Lord himself will come down from heaven. Now these might happen simultaneously, or they might happen in rapid succession, I'm not sure. But the idea is that Jesus will once again burst into time and space with all of his authority, summoning unto himself his own, marking the end of this age and the beginning of a new age. This loud command, it's a a call, it's actually kind of a military word, it's a call of authority. This loud command will awaken those Christians whose bodies sleep in death as we said, as pointed to, as Jesus stood at La- Lazarus' grave, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. John Phillips writes of this command, of this shout, There will follow a wholesale exodus from the tomb. This mighty shout will ring across the five continents in the seven seas. Its vibrant echoes will comb the mountain peaks, the Arctic poles, the desert wastes, the ocean caves, the pampas and and the prairies, the crowded urban graveyards, and the world's great battlefields. And the dead in Christ will rise. Paul assures his readers... (laughs) That those who have union with Christ, that have died before this occasion, will by no means miss out on the Lord's return. He says, in fact, the opposite is true. They'll have front row seats. Because they'll be the first that are raised imperishable. But don't blink your eye. (laughs) That's the sense you get in 1 Corinthians 15. Don't blink your eye. Because those Christians who remain, Paul teaches in that chapter, will be changed. So whether you're with the Lord, whether you had gone to sleep in the Lord, and you're with Him, coming with Him, and your body is raising up to meet Him, or you remain on the earth, in that moment you will be changed. Paul says, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, we will be clothed with the imperishable. In other words, the mortal, the perishable will be set aside and those who are in Christ will become immortal in new spiritual beings. And finally, once and for all, death will be swallowed up in victory now, Paul, Paul seems to, it's interesting in 1 Thessalonians, he says, we who are still alive. Because he doesn't know when the Lord's going to return. That's the point. And we'll go over that next week. We don't know when the Lord's going to return. You're supposed to be ready. So at this point, Paul was still alive. This didn't necessarily mean he assumed he would be alive, but he was eagerly ex- expecting the Lord's coming. Paul says much later in his life, We find this at the end of uh, 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. He says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. He knows he's going to die. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, Will award me on that day. Now listen, he knows he's going to die. He knows his death is imminent, but then he still ends this by saying, And not only me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And that is the way it should be with us not knowing, an eager expectation without assumption. But on that day, there'll be an official meeting with the king and his people. And we will all be awake together. Think about that for a moment. What we're talking about is a moment in which the entire church throughout the ages reaching all the way back to God's people of Israel that were looking forward to Messiah, and then all the people after Messiah, the entire church, no more Lutherans, no more Methodists, no more Pentecostals, no more Baptists, no more Presbyterians, no more (laughs) Uh, non-denominationalists, no more church hopping or church shopping, one singular Bride of Christ from all time and all places and all languages and all people, together awake with the Lord. Transformed, gathered as one, a beautiful bride without blemish, because the Lord has made it so by his blood. A mighty throng with their king, we will be snatched up, those who are still, with, still on the earth, snatched up with him in the clouds. And that, that in the clouds, it, when we, this, this picture of clouds throughout Scripture is a consistent picture of the Lord's presence, that they be enveloped in the clouds. We'll be with the Lord in the air. And it very well may be that, that Paul's kind of pointing to this idea that remember the, that the devil is the rule temporary has this has this dominion. He's the ruler of the king of the air. He's the, the ruler of the dominion of the air. And here now we see the king, Jesus, returning to that dominion of the air and being met with this throng of his people rightfully taking back his dominion. And in humanly speaking, this, this parousia would be, as I said, an official coming of a king or an emperor to a city. And what would happen when you had this official coming is you'd send out a delegation to go meet the king. So that when that king or emperor comes back into the city, he'd be coming back. He'd be coming in with all all his rightful pomp and circumstance. They'd be going out to meet him, this delegation, so they can turn and say, Ah, yes, let's go back into the city. Michael Holmes says the implication of Paul's use of the word meet here is that the resurrected dead and the raptured living together will meet the descending Lord in the air and accompany accompany him in glory and honor the rest of the way to earth. Let me put it this way. Palm Sunday was just a glimpse. Okay? So Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, you got the triumphal entry on steroids here. Okay? Coming back... With the Lord as king. And Paul ends this, and it's really beautiful. Whatever happens here in eschatology, in these end times, th- end times events, one thing's assured, we will never be separated from the Lord. And, and so we will be with the Lord Forever. And, of course, the antithesis of this, the opposite of this, is what the Scripture decide, uh, describes as the torment of hell. But, again, the point is, is that it's separation from God forever. But for the believer in Jesus, John Stott writes, this momentary encounter will lead to an everlasting fellowship. It's a picture that that Jesus gives in the first few lines of of John 14, that that he's preparing a place and that he's he's not going to leave us. He's going to come and he's going to get us and he's going to take us to, to that place to where he is. The point is not so much about the place as it is the presence. We will be with the Lord forever. So Paul says, encourage each other with these words in this truth, in this eager expectation that death has been transformed. The Lord will come, whether we're asleep or whether we're left on earth, the Lord will come and we will be with him. He will reign victorious and all will see it. Take courage with these words. Find comfort in these words. Find strength in these words. Where, O death, is your victory Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.